All right, good. Some excitement, some joy, some smiles. I have a suspicion as to why, though, everybody might be a little bit kind of tired or a little bit fatigued. We'll get in that, into that in just a second. If you have your Bible with you, and I do hope that you do, please go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. I'm sorry, of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. And today we're looking at the verses that were just read. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we do have these. These are just for you. These are a gift to you. If you don't own one, we want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. So if you see one of those near you, please grab one. All right. And uh, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 1, and again, verses 18 through 25, as you do that, we are smack dab right now, neck deep in the middle of this Christmas season, right? Right? It is a season. It is the season, that time of the year, where we are at full peace and we are completely relaxed. And everything slows down. And everything's just good and right and as it should be. That's how Christmas is for you, right? And that's why everyone is so excited to be up on a Sunday morning because this is that time of the year where it's just everything's relaxed and we slow down and we're enjoying fullness of peace in our lives, right? Because this is what shopping does for us. Shopping relaxes us. Does it not? No? Oh, it might be just me then. A little retail therapy is always good. Uh, or, Or mall traffic. It soothes us, right? It, it calms our nerves, sitting in mall traffic, standing in long register lines. That's good for the soul, right? Right? Or is it just me? Like, I love waiting. It's my favorite. Of all my things, that's my favorite, just waiting. Sitting in line. Who invented lines? They should be shot. So, <laughs> how about this one? Don't you just love spending money and buying Christmas stuff and buying presents, and charging up the credit cards. Like, don't you, isn't that good? Doesn't that make you feel at peace? No. I mean, none of that is right. None of that is real. None of, none of that is correct. And, and it's ironic. It is completely ironic, because the whole point of Christmas is peace. And it's ironic because usually what we experience this time of the year is the complete opposite of peace. What we experience during this time of the year is stress. Stress over money. Presence. The stress of what to buy so-and-so, and and what if they buy something more than me, and then I have to, like, then I look back because I didn't buy as much of a present as they bought me. Or what if I oversell it, and I I buy too much, and I spend too much money, and then they they shortchange me by giving me something that, really, that's what you're going to give me? So we stress over presents. We stress over money. What about travel? Like, there's all this travel that so many of us are going to do over the, the holidays, over Christmas. We stress over family. We stress over the in-laws. We love the in-laws. We stress over that. We, we stress over getting out Christmas cards. What's the right picture? Who do we send it to? Do we send it out to everyone? How come so-and-so didn't send us a Christmas card this year? 
Like we stress over all these things and it's the end of the year, which for a lot of folks, this is the time of the year that you're resolving a lot of work stuff. So you got to finish up the projects at work. There's all this stuff. You got to get it done before the Christmas vacation starts. You got to get it done. You got to get it done, which is an impossible task, given that there's 38 to 58 Christmas parties that you've been invited to and you got to be a part of. So all of that's getting in the way. And it's amazing and shocking and sad how much Christmas actually gets in the way of Christmas. And so what we must do, what we should do, is remind ourselves what this time of the year is all about. We have to actually exercise our spiritual muscles and flex our spiritual side and remind ourselves what this season is all about and what Christmas is. It's the celebration of God ushering in his peace into this world. In the midst of this, the, the turmoil and the strife and the chaos and the anxiety and all of that, what we're celebrating this time of the year is this peace that God promised to bring into this world, this peace that he did bring into this world, and, and just that you know, this is what the angels sang on the night that Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. So the whole point of Christmas is peace. And isn't that what we ultimately desire in our lives? Peace of mind peace of heart, peace of soul. That's what we all desire, and it really is sad how little peace we enjoy in the midst of a celebration that is all about peace. But then we start telling ourselves, if I could just make it through the holidays, if I could just get to January, I'll relax, I'll be able to catch my breath, I could settle down. If I could just get to January. Everything will be a lot calmer and more peaceful. Really? Does the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life prove that January in any way is more peaceful, more relaxing, calmer, or soother, more soothing than December? No, it doesn't. Because just because the calendar turns and all of a sudden it's January, by no means is it somehow easier or better or quieter. You don't know what January is going to bring. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, for a lot of you, January is when you get a lot, new, a, a lot more responsibility, responsibilities or new responsibilities at work. For some of you, January is when you get your new sales quotas for the year. January, if I'm not mistaken, is when those credit card bills start coming in for all the money that was spent in December. In my opinion, January is nothing more than a 31-day-long Monday. And we just don't like Mondays, do we? And January just is a Monday that lasts for 31 days. It's all it is. And so just because it's January and just because our decorations are back up in the attic, all of a sudden it's easier and smoother, quieter and more peaceful. 
And, and the reality is that what we need is not the illusion that January is somehow going to be better. What we, we don't need is wishful thinking that just because it's January for the sake of January, there's going to be less hectic. And even if January is less or, or more peaceful than December, even if it's less busy than December, it d- doesn't mean that that is peace. Because peace is, isn't, simplif- isn't a simplified schedule. Like you, I don't know if you recognize this, but peace is not just that my calendar is more manageable, that my life is more manageable. That is not what peace is. Peace is not a more manageable life. Peace is in a, a minimized stress level. That is not what peace is. The peace that that God offers, like true, real, good, right, biblical, Christian peace is way better than a less busy calendar. The peace that God promises is is a fullness of life. It's like abundance of joy, abundance of gladness in our lives. The, the peace that, that God promises to give, give each and every one of us, it's the kind of peace that lifts your spirit, that, that revives your soul, that guards your heart, that invigorates your mind. It's the kind of peace that transcends all understanding, that surpasses all understanding, that it, it transcends our circumstances. That's peace. That's real, right, and good peace. It's a gift that promises rest for the weary, hope for the hopeless, refuge for the afflicted. That's peace. So if this morning, and and I don't know where, where you all are in your life, in your mind, in your hearts with what's going on, if this morning you find yourself stressed or worried or weary, if you find yourself down and out and disenfranchised and discouraged, anxious or stressed or burdened, if you're feeling guilt and shame over something you've done in the past or you're carrying around the emotional, the heavy emotional baggage of what someone may have done to you in the past, just know this, there's good news. And that good news is that God freely offers His peace to each and every one of us. He offers joy abundantly, gladness to the fullest, a satisfied soul to each and every one of us, and he offers it as a gift, a gift of peace. And so the question for all of us is simply this, how do I find that peace? How do I acquire the peace of God? How do I experience it and how do I enjoy it in my life? And the answer is actually quite simple, find Jesus. Find Jesus if you want peace. I read a a, a news report where that in Wellington, Florida, the community center has put this beautiful nativity scene out on their lawn. And if all ceramic nativity scene figures, and they got a life-size ceramic baby Jesus, and it got stolen. Someone stole ceramic life-size baby Jesus. And the cops were able to find life-size ceramic baby Jesus. And the reason or the, the way that they were able to find it wasn't because they followed a star to life-size ceramic baby Jesus, 
is because the people at the community center saw fit to actually put a GPS device on life-size ceramic baby Jesus. And it tra- they were able to track, track it down and find life-size ceramic baby Jesus. And the thing for us is that if we want to find real Jesus, God-sized Jesus, we don't need GPS. All we need is the Bible. All that we need to find Christ, to find joy, to find peace, is what is revealed to us in Scripture itself. The most beautiful promise that we could ever hope to enjoy we find and we discover in God's word and that promise is that God freely offers us abundant, eternal, glorious peace for each and every one of us. Anyone that so wants it, if you want it, it's available to you. And that's what we we get into Christmas and it's made available to us by the birth of Christ. That that is the means by which we receive this peace of God through the birth of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, correct? We celebrate baby Jesus coming into the world. Not ceramic Jesus, real Jesus. Baby Jesus coming into the world. So with that, let's go ahead and kind of get into our, our text here into Matthew 1. So we can discover this peace, so we can find it, enjoy it, so we can find Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 Starts off this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so what we're told right there is that Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he's about to tell us about the birth of Jesus, right? He's about to tell us the whole birth story. But before we go forward, before we actually unpack and look at what the birth of Jesus looked like, I think it might be good for us to look backwards a little bit. Like, for us to get the significance of the birth of Jesus, let's look back and try to trace what has led up to the birth of Jesus. So it goes something like this. For centuries, century after century after century after century, God's people have awaited in anticipation for God to fulfill a promise. And that promise is to bring peace into the chaos of this world. To bring his divine and glorious peace into our lives. And so people have waited for this. And the promise is that that peace would be ushered in through the Messiah. And the Messiah is is an Old Testament Hebrew word that means anointed one. It means anointed one. It ref- it's a title that refers to the promised deliverer. This one that God would raise up in the world specifically to restore humanity to everything that we're supposed to be. Restore the world to everything that God intended it to be. This deliverer, this Messiah would come and he would bring joy and he would usher in God's kingdom and he would offer forgiveness for sin. And this is, this is the story that God is promising to fulfill in the life through this Messiah. And we're told over and over in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham and of David. A descendant of Abraham and David. And Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish nation. He's the the main primary 
forefather of Israel, of the Israelite nation. And God made a covenant with Abraham 2,000 years prior to the birth of Jesus. 2,000 years. Two millennia before Jesus was born, God makes a promise with this dude named Abraham and says, I promise that through you, I am going to bless the world. Through you, I'm going to raise up this Messiah who makes everything right. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, this is the, God, the promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, I will make I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise that God makes to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus is that he is going to bless all of the nations through this one nation. So Abraham, if you know the story, he's an old dude in Genesis 12. He's like 70 years old. His wife is 60 years old. They've never had children, never been able to have children. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And 20 years after that, they have a son together. And through that one son, there's another son. And then there's, there's another son. And it leads, it leads to the, what is establishment of Israel. So that he becomes a great nation. And God promises, I will make you, you old man, a great nation. And through you, out of this nation, I will raise up a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to bless the nations. Going to bless the world. And this Messiah is going to be the one that reverses the consequences of the fall. The fall referring to that original sin that took place in the Garden of Eden. When we first initially rebelled against God and then it all went to junk. It, like, it all got jacked up. Where it all went down the toilet. And so all the turmoil and the strife and the, the chaos, the consequences that, that we now have to deal with are a result of that initial fall, that original sin in the Garden of Eden. And God said, Abraham, through you, through one of your descendants, I'm going to raise up this Messiah and he's going to make it all right. He's going to make it good again. And God also makes a covenant with King David. So 1,000 years before Jesus is born. A thousand years. A thousand years. I just like saying that because it's important to point out that it's a thousand years before Jesus was born. God makes this promise to King David. He says, King David, through you, I'm going to raise up the Messiah. And so God tells them in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so David, after you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, you sh who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So right there, the promise is King David. And just imagine that you're, you're King David. You're just a guy. You're just a dude. And you're, you're the king. For no reason other than God appointed you king. So there's nothing really special about you other than God said, hey, you're king. 
And then God comes up to you and says, you know what? This royal line that I'm establishing through you is going to last forever. This throne that you currently sit on is going to be an everlasting, eternal throne. And one of your offspring, one of your descendants is going to sit on that throne forever and ever and ever. And it's not just the king of Israel, mind you. It's the king of the universe. It's not just a a temporal kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. All the nations will be placed under the rule of this eventual king that is to come. And this king is going to bring peace perfect peace into the world. This is what Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, the nations, everything, all rule and authority on the shoulders of the one Messiah, the one king. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his what? Peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. So here are the promises of the Old Testament. Abraham. Through your lineage is going to come this Messiah, and this Messiah is going to make everything right, and he's going to bring the nations back together, because ever since that sin in the Garden of Eden, what has man done? Ran from God, gone away from God. And so God's promise, ever since that original sin, I'm going to pull it all back together. I'm going to bring it all back together. I'm going to create this one people under God. Right? That's God's purpose. It's Jeremiah 31, 33. I shall be their God. They shall be my people. God's purpose for everything that we experience in this world, for creating this world, is that one verse. To secure people for his own possession. And it all went awry, but God said, I promise I'm going to bring it all back. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to, Abraham, through you, I'm going to raise up this individual, and he's going to make it all right. And David, through you, not only is he a savior, not only is he a Messiah, a deliverer, he's also a king. So these are the promises of the Old Testament that God says he's going to raise up this individual, this one that's going to make everything right. And so we read the Old Testament, every last bit of it, word after word, book after book, and we get to the end of it, and we get to the end of the Old Testament, and we turn that page, and we flip to the New Testament. And how does the New Testament begin? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. And the son of who? Abraham. The gospel begins by letting us know, by making it absolutely clear, that this Jesus character is the one that has been prophesied about, the one who has been promised, the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. He's no random character. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Christ. Verse 1, it tells us he is the Christ. Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ is the New Testament Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew title Messiah. 
Christ means Messiah. Jesus, in other words, is the anointed one, the promised deliverer, the one that God said, I'm going to raise this one up. I'm going to raise him up and he's going to make everything right. He's going to usher peace into the world and he's going to be a good king. He's going to rule in peace. He's going to rule in peace. He's going to be a good king. And so what Matthew does in verses 2 through 17, he actually provides us with a snapshot of the lineage of Jesus with the family tree, the family line. And in verses 2 through 6, Matthew traces the lineage from Abraham to David. And from 6 to 11, he traces the lineage from David to the deportation. And the deportation refers to that event, that time in Israel's history when Israel, because of their constant rebellion against God and their constant sin against God and their constant just always, always not obeying and abiding and walking in the ways of the Lord, God punishes the nation of Israel until he exiles them. He deports them out of the land. He sends them into captivity on account of their, their sin. So that's what Matthew does here. So he, 6, 6 through 11, he traces the lineage from David to the deportation. And then in verses 12 through 16, he traces the, the lineage of Jesus from that deportation and captivity up until the birth of Christ. And it's with that that Matthew in verse 18 then says, And now, let me tell you about the birth of Jesus. And I don't want us to actually miss the significance of why Matthew breaks down the lineage into those specific three sections. Because I think it's significant that he does so. One, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You know, didn't God say, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations? Well, that blessing is Jesus. So that's why the first section there, Jesus is the blessing through whom we now receive the peace of God. There is no peace of God without Jesus. And so, and why does it trace it from Abraham to David? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. So that means that Jesus is that king who will sit upon that everlasting throne. And the point of that is, there is no peace so long as we're attempting to rule over our own lives. There is no peace outside or exclusively, or it's only found exclusively in following Jesus, establishing Him as Lord of our lives. It's exclusively and uniquely found in the person of Christ, serving Him, honoring Him, yielding our lives over into his benevolent rule. And in that last section, why does he mention the captivity at all? It's because Jesus is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the Savior who came to deliver us out of the captivity of our sin. Because we're all born into exile is the reality. We come into this world sinners with a sinful status before God and a sinful predisposition against God. So we're already in exile. So God says, there's chaos in that exile. I want to bring you into peace. So that's Jesus. He raises up this Messiah, this Savior. And so Jesus is the one who delivers us. So he's the one through whom we're forgiven and we receive pardon, we receive grace, mercy, goodness, and kindness. 
So Jesus satisfies everything, everything in the Old Testament. That's Jesus, the birth of Jesus. That's the celebration of Christmas. That's the significance of this time of the year. He's ushering in the peace of God. He did this now from our standpoint 2,000 years ago, and it's through Jesus that we receive the blessing of God because he is the blessing of God. And part of that blessing is that he becomes our benevolent and good and wise and merciful ruler, our king. And it's through him that we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin. And this is why the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. That's Christmas. So all of that, all of that leads me up to this one question. Is this the song that you're singing? In the midst of all the chaos and the hubbub and the twinkly lights of Christmas, are you singing along with the angels and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. On earth, peace. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing that I receive in Christ. Praise you, King Jesus, for ruling over my life. Praise you for delivering me and giving me eternal life. This Christmas, are you singing with the angels? All right, that's all the background. Now, into the story. Oh, we love the story of little baby Jesus, don't we? Being born all cute and swaddling clothes. All right, here we go. Verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, it says that they are betrothed there. Let me explain to you what that means. I like talking about this subject. Uh, because this is very, very misunderstood. Betrothed, some people teach it as meaning engagement. False. It does not mean engagement. Mary and Joseph are married. They are legally married. They are husband and wife. This is not engagement. Betrothal is something very unique to Jewish custom back then. No one today practices betrothal, not even Jews. All right? And no one back then other than Jews practiced betrothal. It is uniquely, exclusively an old school Jewish custom. And this is how it worked. You had a single man and a single woman. And then they got married, betrothed. And then they entered into a period in which they're betrothed, but not living together. Not living together. They hadn't consummate what we would call consummate the marriage. So they're married, their husband and wife, legally bound, their husband and wife, just not living together. And at some point in the future, a few months later, maybe a year later, there's this big feast, there's this big ceremony, Everybody shows up, anyone who's, anyone is there at this big party, and that is the, that's the second stage of the wedding. And it's at that point that the woman would come and live with her husband. So that's step two of the marriage, or how you get into the marriage. That's what betrothal means, and that's why in verse 18, it says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, but hadn't come together yet. So, they were married, 
but it hadn't consummated. They hadn't had relations. It's what that's referring to. Now, scandal breaks out. Big old scandal where they're living. Mary's pregnant. Scandalous. Why? Because Joseph knows they hadn't done anything. And all of a sudden, his wife is pregnant. And this looks bad. This looks really bad. It's awful. And Joseph is thinking what any of us would think. My wife just cheated on me. She just committed adultery and cheated on me. Oh, my word. I am married to an adulteress. And the, the fact is, you know, today, it's actually kind of sad. We don't think much about adultery. We, we're almost a bit glib to it, a bit numb to it. I think we, like movies and magazines and TV shows, it, it's so out there. It's, it's almost as if it's encouraged in society. Like, it's not just that we don't, we don't sweep it under the rug and we don't turn a blind eye to it. It's almost encouraged. Like, I mean, you hear the arguments on all the talk shows. Well, it's a bit unnatural for a man to go 30 years and only have one woman. Like, it's actually encouraged or expected. It's assumed that we were going to do this to one another, that we will cheat on one another. And so we're living this cu- in this culture where we gloss over it. You know, our, moral, our morals have degraded to the point that really there's almost no shame in it anymore like eh it happens probably even more than we know it happens a lot and the thing is that back then it was radically different it was radically different in first century israel like there was massive public shame if you were found out to be an adulterer and on top of that back then it was punishable by death People would be stoned legally for cheating on their spouse. For cheating on the spouse. And understanding that helps us to understand the kind of man that Joseph was. Because it tells us in verse 19, it says, And her husband, see, they're betrothed, they're married. It refers to him as her husband. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So it says that Joseph is a just man. What does that mean? That he is a just man. It means that he's devout in obeying God's word. Like he's morally upstanding. Like he's a follower of God. Like he he walks in the ways of the Lord. He's careful to observe the laws, the commands of God. So he's just, he's righteous is what the word means. Devout, upright. He's a good man doing the right thing, walking in the ways of the Lord, and it would seem that he has married a loose woman. It would so appear that him being the just and righteous and good, godly, upstanding man that he is, that he has married quite the opposite. That he's married someone that's quite loose in her morals and doesn't care that much about honoring God with her life as much as he does. And Joseph being the just man that he is, he knows Scripture, and he knows that because they are betrothed, in this period of betrothal, 
he has permission to divorce her because she has cheated on him during the betrothal period. So he, being the just man, he knows this. So he says, you know what? I'm going to divorce her. She cheated on me. We're betrothed. We haven't completed the marriage thing yet, so I have a loophole. I can get out of this. And so he decides to do so because she has betrayed him. She sinned against God. And here's the thing. He could have brought down the law upon Mary with full rigor, but he didn't. Watch this, folks. Like, instead of bringing the full weight of the law to just bear down upon Mary, he chooses mercy. He chooses compassion. You see that? He chooses to divorce her how? Quietly. Like, he could, he could divorce her and have her stoned. And technically, he would be correct to do so. And he chooses instead to divorce her quietly and not only to spare her death, but to spare her from public humiliation. And, and the thing is that his concern for the laws, because he's a just man, his concern for the things of God did not lead him to the conclusion that he could humiliate Mary even though he thought she had humiliated him. And who can humiliate you more than your spouse? Can anyone hurt you more than your spouse? Can anyone try you more than your spouse? No. Children, no. Your spouse, no one can hurt you more than your spouse. And here, it was right. He could have done it. I'm going to divorce you publicly. I'm going to humiliate you because you've humiliated me. And I'm going to have you stoned to death because that's the right thing to do. And he chose mercy and compassion toward Mary. And I say all that to say that Joseph is a model to us. He's an example to us. Not just someone who knows the letter of the law, but someone who understands the spirit of God's law. Someone who balances this high regard for God's glorious standards of how we should live and how we should act and how we should behave and what we should do. He balances that out with mercy and compassion and with grace. You know, and it's so easy for all of us to stand in judgment over someone who hurts us. It's so easy to stand in judgment over someone who humiliates us. To judge them and to cast those stones right back at them. We even feel justified and vindicated to do so. And maybe even in some cases, technically we could. And it would be okay to do so. But the fact is that as followers of Christ, we never take the posture of retaliation. Vengeance is the Lord, says the Lord. We're not the judge and we're not the jury. That's God's role. And so we pray, God, forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. That's the posture of a believer. That's a follower of Christ. We call out sin. We hold people accountable. But we do so for the sake of helping others. Not for the sake of hurting them, humiliating 
tearing them down or destroying them. So Joseph is a model to us, is he not? Joseph has made up his mind. He's going to divorce Mary. He assumes that she's cheated on him. We all would think the same thing. We all would think the exact same thing. And then, all of a sudden, in verse 20 and 21, this angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and the angel says to him, Joseph, son of David. So he's of the line of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So this child, it turns out, turns out is not the byproduct of some sinful union. This child is the product of God's miracle, of God's supernatural power. A virgin who's never had sex with another individual, with another man, is going to have a baby. Get out. Shut up. Shut up. Stop your face. Like, like, this is unbelievable. Like, how does this happen? How does a baby come out of nothing? Like, that's what's happening here. How can this virgin have a baby? How can she be pregnant? It's a miracle, right? Isn't that amazing? Honestly, think about it. We've, a lot of us have heard this story so much. We're a little bit numb to it. A virgin is pregnant. Pregnant. And you're not partly pregnant. You're fully pregnant. Like, there's no in-between. There's no parlay. It's not like almost dead. None of that. It's like she's pregnant. She's a virgin. You get that? Do you understand that? The miracle, the power of God to do this in the life of an individual. Shut up. Shut up. I won't. I got a few more minutes to talk. All right. And the thing is that what's really amazing in the true display of God's power in the real miracle is not that a virgin is pregnant. The real miracle is that this child is going to be both God and man. That's the miracle. That this child is going to be divine and human. Through this miracle, through this miracle, that deity and humanity are being joined and united in indissoluble unity. God became incarnate. God took on flesh. He became like one of us. So folks, watch this. It's not only that Jesus Christ descended from Abraham and descended from David. It's that he descended from heaven. He is God himself who came into this world to be among us. He is Emmanuel. Verse 22 says he is Emmanuel. That's his name. And Emmanuel means God with us. So that's why on the night that Jesus is born, the angels are singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. You know that God and peace are inseparable, right? God is peace. Peace is God. They're they're one and the same. They're one and the same. So what the angels are really singing is glory to God in the highest and on earth, God among men. And folks, that's Christmas. I mean, that's what we celebrate during this time of the year, this marvelous news that we celebrate that God the Son, so the second member of the Holy Trinity, leaves heaven and in humility comes down and he's born of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God, and he lives among us. 
That's Christmas. And he does that. Why? Why in the world would God himself leave the comforts and the riches and the glories and the beauty of heaven, the bliss of heaven? Why in the world would he leave that and come down into this world? Why would he do such a thing? And the reason is found in the very name Jesus. Because the text tells us here what Jesus means. Jesus means God saves. Like the very name Jesus embodies the mission of God. It embodies this this loving mission that God has been on ever since we sinned in the Garden of Eden. Ever since we sinned and we fell from grace in the Garden of Eden, God promised, I'm going to send my Messiah. I'm going to send myself. I'm going to come down to you to restore you, to redeem you, to, to pay for the consequences of your sin, so that you may have forgiveness. That's why he came down. Like all this turmoil and strife and stress and anxiety and fear and worry, all these burdens that we experience in our life are all the direct direct consequence of our sin. And in great mercy, God's like, I'm coming down and I've got it. I've got it. I'm taking care of it. You know that God knows our, our hearts, right? He knows our thoughts. He reads, He reads our hearts. And what is terrifying is that God sees more defilement in your good than we even see in our bad. Let me say that again. God sees more defilement in our good than we even see in our very own sin. And God does not hate us. He loves us, loves us, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus is not just king of kings, he's not just lord of lords, he's the gift of gifts. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So Jesus comes down into this world to be this Messiah, this Savior, this Deliverer, to be our surety, our proxy, our Redeemer. He comes down, why? He comes down here below to raise us up. He he comes down here to be with us so that we may be with him. He becomes like one of us that we may become like him. And so in this mess of sin that we're completely undone by, that we're undone by sin and when we have no will, we don't even have the discipline to get ourselves out of the sin that we're in, when we don't even have the intellect or the creativity to get ourselves out of this mess that we're in, Jesus came down and he saved us. He did that for us, which we cannot do for ourselves. And he came that we may experience this peace of God. To fix it. To make it right. To give us joy and hope. Gladness. To give us peace. You know, it had to be God. See, this is the the thing that gets lost in all these flying mammals uh, that have Christmas stuff. It had to be God himself who came down to earth. It had to be the one and only true living God who leaves heaven and comes down to earth. It had to be him. He had to be God and man together. That's who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man in one. It had to be him. It could be no one else. And the reason why he had to be man is because it had to be a man who represented us before God. It had to be a man that represented us on the cross. 
And it had to be God. Why? Because only God can save us. What took place on the cross? On the cross, our sin was placed upon the shoulders of Christ. And there, holy wrath and indignation and punishment and judgment on, our, on, a, on account of our sin was poured on the person of Jesus Christ. Well, none of us can survive that. It's impossible for any of us to survive that. But who can? God. It had to be God. And, and He proved it to us that He survived it. How? Because three days after His crucifixion, He was raised from the dead. He walked up out of the tomb alive and well. So it had to be Him. It had to be Christ to do that. So that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's, that's the Gospel right there. And, and the question for us this morning is, how do you respond to that? What is the appropriate response to who Jesus is and what He accomplished for us? And it's quite simple. It's faith. It's believing in Him. It's trusting in Him. It's giving your life over to Him. It's, it's finally coming clean before God and confessing our sin and, and say, laying it out before Him. And He knows you're not going to shock Him. You're not going to surprise Him. He loves you. So just confess it, repent of it. He embraces you. He, he embraces you into His own. And He forgives it all. And it's just like that. It's just a, a trust, a faith, a belief issue. And you give your life over to this King to now rule over your life. To reign over your heart. And, and, and if you've taken that step of faith, then what's the next step? Well, the next step is simply to be a follower of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus. And what does that mean? Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 tell us, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The right response to Jesus is imitate Jesus. And let me tell you how simple this is. What did Jesus do? He sacrificed. He lovingly sacrificed for others. He was on mission sharing the goodness of God with others. So how do you respond to the Christmas story? The right way, the appropriate way is in faith to, to the degree in which you now imitate Christ and you live on mission for Christ, furthering the gospel, being a witness for him, telling others about Jesus and telling them the truth about Christmas. Like, I, if, and I don't know about everybody in here, I don't know what you tell your kids. Uh, if, if you don't tell your kids the truth about Santa, keep them away from my kids because we do. <laughs> And we get in trouble every once in a while because our kids out you <laughs> for not telling the truth about who Santa may or may not be. And we often, teachers call us up, your kid just spilled the beans. My bad. So I uh, don't really apologize for that. But tell others the truth about Christ. This is what Christmas is. It's not, I mean, flying mammals are cute and all. I watch the claymation specials. There's nothing wrong with watching it. But tell them the truth. Share that truth with other folks. Right? During the busyness and the hectic of this Christmas season, be sure to be an example for others. Be, be a witness for Christ. This next summer, go to Haiti. Let's go to Haiti together. It'll be warm. 
very warm, be hot, we'll sweat a lot together. <laughs> but I mean, let's go on mission together. Let's go to Haiti, tropical Haiti. You know, let's serve here at the church. We're always looking for volunteers. It was announced earlier. It's being on mission. If you're a follower of Jesus and God has called you to be a part of this church, come on, let's roll up our sleeves and, and serve in different ways. Let's get in the community. Let's outreach. Let's do the things that we're supposed to do as individuals and as followers of Jesus. You know, we have these at the front desk. These are like, we call them our join us cards. There's a little, got our information on it. Just grab a few of these, four, five, six of them. Take them around, keep them in your wallet, and just hand them out around town during the week. Invite people to church. I mean, that's not the end-all be the end all goal of, of being a follower of Christ and being a witness, but it's something. So we got plenty of these. Just grab a few, take them around with you. But the point is, be a witness, share, share Jesus with other people. If you see a need, meet it. If you see the hopeless, give them hope. If you see someone that needs help, help them. Be an imitator of Christ. That's how we respond to the story of Christmas. That's how we respond to who Jesus is. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God's blessing to the world. He's our good king. He's our savior, the Messiah who came to save us from all our sin. And so I'm just going to give you a second right now just to respond where you are and to close your, your eyes and bow your heads and just based on everything that you've heard today, how do you need to respond to the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Lord, Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for all the promises that you made, Lord, and more importantly, how you kept every one of your promises. Lord, and that these aren't trivial promises, but these are promises, Lord, that are eternal. They're for your glory and for our good. And I pray this morning, Lord, that for each and every one of us, that we would embrace how you keep your word and how you keep your promises and how you give us peace. You promise to give us a peace to relieve all our fears and our troubles. Lord, if there's anyone here who is troubled, I pray that you would just usher your peace into their hearts right now. Lord, if there's anyone here who would has never embraced the gospel or given their lives over to, to Christ and asked for forgiveness and become a follower, Lord, I pray that they would do so now, that you would just open up the, their hearts, Lord, that they would give themselves over to you. For followers of Christ, Lord, I pray that we would embrace the season, that we would understand it for what it's supposed to be, a celebration of this marvelous gift of peace that you've provided. And that we'll be so grateful for it, Lord, that it would compel us to help others to understand this wonderful gift that you've given 
through the birth, the life, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we praise you for your love. We praise you that you loved us so much that you sent your only Son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to the Lord.